that a loaded question? Your first reaction is probably to ask a question right back. Are you talented? Well, yeah, but it depends on at what, right? You see, as kids, we're told everybody is talented. That picture you drew deserves a special place on the refrigerator. That clay thing you made, well, we're not really sure if it's a dragon or a school bus, but it's going on the mantle nonetheless. You, your dance recital was fantastic, poetic, Of course you were the best one on the baseball team. You are fast. You sing beautifully. And of course this is wonderful. We're encouraging our children to explore and practice and learn the world around them. But the underlying assumption here is that we're letting them find the thing. You know, the thing. Find the one thing that they're talented at. And as we get older, we adults start getting clinical about this. Time is short. Gotta find that optimal path. We use self-assessment tests to help us find it. Well, here's the thing that you're probably talented at. Yeah, you, you're six foot five. You should find out how to be a basketball player. Ooh, but you, you're an introvert. So that probably means you won't find your talent in public speaking. You, you're left-brained. You shouldn't pursue that design career. And of course, we know in our hearts, we don't say it, but we know finding it feels wrong. On one side, you have the talented person who isn't for some reason finding it. You're not trying hard enough, the consensus tells us to tell that person, which means we've tested you. You're predetermined to be talented at this thing. You have to find it. And this feels wrong. On the other side, without fail, every single person I know after taking one of those scientifically programmed tests or a Facebook quiz, that what do they find? That I am the exception. We think to ourselves, but yeah, I actually enjoy singing. I actually am passionate about public speaking. I actually can discover how to become a superstar athlete. I actually am Yoda in the Star Wars universe. But no... The consensus tells you, you can't, and you aren't. You're simply not programmed for it. And that feels wrong. And that's where we get into this debate. Is talent innate, or is it learned? Is it because we put in our 10,000 hours that we become talented at the thing, or is it because we're talented that we put in the 10,000 hours and master it? And of course, there are books and research studies and passionate debates about this, and that's for a different day. But there is another wrinkle that I find really interesting. What about the things where there aren't 10,000 hours of collective experience? How do we assess our talent for the new things that simply don't really even exist yet, that are unfindable, or that have just been found? Who is talented at artificial intelligence or digital marketing even? If you started in January of 2007 thinking about digital marketing and put three or four hours a day into mastering that skill, it would be just today in 2017 that you'd have put your 10,000 hours in. But of course that doesn't work either, right? Digital marketing isn't football or music or painting where the talent for it hasn't changed really. We've seen the practice of digital marketing change fundamentally in the course of the last few years. So are we talented at it yet? 
How do we assess the talent of today's college graduate to add to our marketing teams? They've just spent the last four years, the last 5,000 hours, learning things that we don't do anymore and are already outdated by the time they leave college. How do we assess our own talent and where we should be putting our development, our next 10,000 hours? Should I be putting 10,000 hours into cryptocurrency, Internet of Things, artificial intelligence, virtual reality, agile marketing? Are we talented at it? One thing that can help is a change in our mindset. There's a wonderful book called Mindset, The New Psychology of Success, where author Carol Dweck makes the argument for two different types of mindsets. A growth mindset, where you break the chain of limiting thoughts about what you can achieve and be, or a fixed mindset, where you believe that your basic qualities like intelligence or talent are simply fixed and you can't change them. Now, the tendency, however, is to misapply the growth mindset because it sounds wonderful, right? And we just chalk everything up to practice. Just try harder. Just keep practicing. That's growth. It's not. Trust me. If I put 10,000 more hours into playing piano, I am not going to give Billy Joel a run for his money. But that's not why I'm not passionate about it. Neither of those things determine talent. You see, if I want to become talented, I could. The key is rather about what Carol Dweck in her book said in a wonderful quote where she says, becoming is better than being. So if I'm passionate about piano, that growth is more important than the outcome. That's what having a growth mindset is all about. It's not about the successful outcome. So ultimately, the right answer to the question, are you talented, is yes, I am. I'm working at it every day. Talented isn't an end state. It's a process, and we're always working toward it. And that's the theme of our show today. Talent, finding it versus choosing it. It's a process. So choosing our talents, not finding them, is the order of the day. Let's constantly work at making the choices we're interested and passionate in in order to become more and more talented. Becoming talented, not being talented. And with that, you ready for our little talent show? Well, then... Let's roll. For your listening pleasure, here's Polizzi and Rose, PR with this old marketing. Take it away, boys. Well, hello, content marketers. This is Robert Rose, and welcome to episode number 202 of PNR's This Old Marketing, recorded Monday, September 25th, 2017. And with me, as always, is my co-host, my colleague, my friend, and the most talented man in content marketing, Mr. Joe Pulitzi. How are you, my friend? You know that that's not true. That's it not, is true. No. It is absolutely no, I, true. I, I've said this before. I do this often with you. I take your ideas... And I just promote them better. I'm I'm <laughs> well, a better marketer a than you, that. but there's you're a, a better thinker. You're a better strategic thinker. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. I mean, I I'm I'd be really good at like selling insurance or used cars. I I'd rock that. 
Absolutely. What do I need to do to get you into content marketing today? <laughs> Are you kidding me? I'm out there with an orange suit, man. I am the circus leader. I know what role I play. That's I right. absolutely know. That's why you and I are so good together. Like you yeah. really you really thoughtful about the approach. I mean you you I mean you go in depth and I just take a sound bite and sell the crap out of it. So Ah, but see there that's an admirable talent, my friend. And one that's <laughs> and, and then and it's one by the way that it's 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 one by the way that I, I have aspirations to at some point. I, I I am becoming talented in that area. I'm trying to oh, anyway, and you, working you, at it. Just be careful. It yeah. you, you, it takes you down into a dark place, my friend. <laughs> I have to tell you that once you put on the orange suit, <laughs> you ooh, never go back. I gotta tell. I gotta tell. Yes, I can't even. It's like go. the green pill and the red pill in the Matrix, right? You, you make you, the decision to put on the orange suit, and you can't take it off. I'm not kidding you. And I mean, you know this. Like, I can't go to the store, and if somebody sees me and I'm not wearing orange, I get. I mean. I get a yell at you. Yes. Yeah. It's like you're not the Joe Polizzi I knew. You're not committed to the cause. <laughs> Who are you? I'm like, I'm just trying to buy a loaf of bread and some ham. Like that's all I want to do. I want to make a ham sandwich, and and you're in my face. Anyways, <laughs> I don't know where this is all going. You stand up comic all of a sudden. <laughs> I I'm up on stage, it. and I'm trying to get a ham sandwich. What's the deal? With- <laughs> God. Sorry, folks. Yes. This has uh, gone off the rails already. Actually, we're here's only what two we're and a half do. minutes yeah, in. We'll go right into the show, because yeah. that was just enough of an introduction as we go. I got, I got a couple quick announcements to make. Yeah. Uh, we are coming to the end to have our 2017 Content Marketing World videos available so if you want access to all the wonderful sessions from Content Marketing World, go to contentmarketingworld.com or cmi.media slash video17, cmi.media slash video17. And then you can use coupon code CMIFRIENDS100, CMIFRIENDS100 to save $100 off getting all the, all the sessions, whether you were there or not. If you want all the sessions, I'll tell you what, it's fantastic. Obviously, the best one we've ever done. And you can share them with your team and all kinds of good stuff. So that's one announcement. The second announcement is fall enrollment for CMI University ends Friday, last day of September. So go to dun, dun, dun. contentmarketinguniversity.com and input code fall 100 fall 100 although it doesn't feel like fall because i'm in chicago right now and it's like 92 degrees oh my gosh i know it's crazy fall 100 to save a hundred dollars off cmi university uh and you get full year access to that by the way so if you go ahead and do this which you absolutely should if you want it for yourself or for your team and there's of course there's group discounts as well um, you get a full year access, twelve month access for that program. So, and and it's awesome because Robert Rose put it together, and as we just said, he's really good <laughs> at strategic thinking and education. Yeah. While I'm not, that's not what I do. So, um, and then, well, let's just flow right into the opening sponsor. Should we do that, yeah, Robert? Are absolutely, you cool that? we should because it's a returning sponsor. First of all. And I have to tell you, this is a, probably my favorite company name. I've said it before on the show, but my favorite company. I love Ahrefs. this company name. Yeah. Ahrefs. A-H-R-E-F-S. Ahrefs. We love our returning sponsors, which means we did something right the first time. I don't know what it was, but something good happened. Something Ahrefs good. comes back. 
and they're going to be our perhaps we the- linked them to something oh <laughs> i see what you did there uh hrefs is a powerful seo tool set which has many amazing tools for content marketers who are looking to grow their traffic from Google. With Ahrefs tools, you can easily find out what people are searching for on Google so that to create content around, so you can create content around the most popular search query. Sorry about that. You can also discover content that has the most shares, earn the most backlinks so that you can piggyback on it and get the same results. And finally, you can easily research your competitors and find out which content brings them the most traffic from Google. Of course, you can do a little bit of sleuthing there if you're, if you're into that sort of thing. Now, <laughs> we have an exclusive opportunity for PNR podcast listeners. Here's what we're going to do. Any listener that tweets using the This Old Marketing hashtag on Twitter between the dates of September 30th through October 28th, will be entered into a drawing to win an annual Ahrefs account plus a signed copy of Joe and Roberts, that's me and you, new book, Killing Marketing. So you get... Ah, that's a cool promotion. I know. So we're going we're gonna to give away four of these. So you get... So four. there are going to be four winners. We're going to do it for a month between September 30th and October 28th, and we're going to randomly select four winners. One's going to be drawn each week as we do for the next four episodes of This Old Marketing. So use the hashtag This Old Marketing on whatever. Like, I want the Ahrefs tool. I love killing marketing. I bought killing marketing. I love killing marketing. I really love killing marketing. Whatever you want to say, <laughs> just use the This Old Marketing hashtag uh, when you do it. And thanks to Ahrefs. I love programs like this. This is total fun. Yeah. And we had, man, did we have a ball with the killing marketing we hashtag did. stuff. You you folks are silly people, and I love yeah, you all. Wonderful, because those were so awesome. As we saw those killing marketing hashtag uh, requests come in, so Ahrefs, thank you. This old marketing hashtag. Go ahead. We were going to uh, get four winners, and we'll make stuff happen. So there you go. Absolutely, we will. I love it. All right. Well, let's jump into the show as we have been doing here, and let's start with our quick hit section, of course, um, which is, of course, larger stories that encompass the world of marketing, advertising, and all of the wonderful things in the world that are happening that we think you should be paying attention to. Um, and we'll start out with our quick hits with our friends at the Goog, the Alphabet. Um, and this co- story comes to us courtesy of TheVerge.com, although a million other places are covering it as well because it's big, big news. Uh, Google sets its sight on the iPhone with the HTC deal. And of course, unless you were under a rock and didn't follow any technology last week, you totally know what I'm talking about here. The story opens up by saying, of the three most influential companies in smartphone design, Nokia fragmented into a million pieces after being bought out by Microsoft. Apple is still going strong, and Google just bought the third with its $1.1 billion deal with HTC. The reason why Google acquired what looks to be the majority of HTC's phone design and engineering team is simple, and it's been obvious for over a year. Google is serious about becoming a hardware company. Uh, so what uh, what say you to, to this, Mr. Polizzi? Is, did, you, did you care about this one way or the other? Well, I think the... I know you're an investor, so... Oh yeah, I've been uh, I've been an investor in the Goog for a long time, and or Alphabet or whatever you want to call it. I, you know what I thought of when I I mean it's obvious the article's correct. Of course, Google is making a play into hardware. If you didn't get that in 2012 when they bought Motorola, then of course and of course that had difficulties. But now I think they it sounds like at least according to this article, they've got their stuff together. They're making inroads. They're going after Apple. There's no doubt about it. What I, 
then then I'm thinking, okay, well, what does that mean? I know it's totally off the topic, but what does that mean for Amazon? And what that, does that mean for Facebook? Because I really see those four as, all right, we know software is important. We know that building communities is important. We know that hardware is important. And they want all of it, just like Amazon, right? Wants every industry. So it's funny to see something like this happen. I, um, I just got to thinking, well, what's Amazon going to buy next? Are they going to buy? I have a prediction here. Oh, well, all yeah. right. I'm, I'm okay. Hold on. Let me sit back. Yeah. I'm going to, okay. All right. Mm, okay. You can, Are you, you can in go your now. Zen position? Yes, I'm ready. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. So I, you're absolutely right. I mean, for me, this is, this is, this is Google continuing to make a play as all of the major four horsemen, if you will, are making a play for audience. I mean, you know, I hate to bring it back to the thing that I've been on a soapbox about lately, but this is it. It's exactly what it is. It used to be back when I was in cable television, we used to talk about the last mile, right? Who had the last mile between uh, provider and consumer? And now it's quite literally the last three feet, right? So who is... Who, is, who has control of the relationship with the audience and the direct access to address them? And that's really, in today's mobile-driven world, who has the phone? And so with Google going in to compete in a serious manner for that which you actually pick up and use as your interface to content, it's their ability to control the access to audiences. Uh, Apple has had this for a long time, um, of course, and you know the others that we look at from a from other devices standpoint, your Comcast, Verizon, they're all making plays to be that last few feet between you and the screen because that's who controls access, and he who controls access controls the monetization. And so, basically, you you Amazon did this a while back, right when they introduced the Kindle for like you know whatever it was, sure. 30 cents or 40 cents or something yeah. that you had to pay for it. And of course, the whole point was to get you to buy more stuff. As Amazon makes significant bets into this, I would absolutely see Amazon either bringing out or acquiring something in the entertainment space, entertainment hardware space, maybe a television, maybe a set-top box, you know, a la a Slingbox or a Hulu or something like that. Um, or not Hulu, but um, TiVo, you know, those those kinds of boxes, set-top boxes. I don't feel like Amazon's going to go try and compete in the mobile phone space, but, but I do think whether it's through, you know, what the integration they're having through Alexa and voice search, which we'll talk about here in a minute, but um, through their access and hardware into the home, I think that's where you're going to see Amazon make its next yep. big play. Is it some hardware device in the home, set-top box, some sort of device? Do you think they need it though with the Echo? I mean, do you think they absolutely need it uh, since that's been selling quite well? And every time you go to Amazon.com, they have a big old ad promoting it. Well, remember, there's two pa- there's two points to it, right? One is shopping, and then the other is entertainment. And so making a huge investment into Prime, they need to make sure that they, that, they, that they don't seed. And when I say seed, I mean C-E-D-E. They don't seed the market to Google and Apple. Yep. In other words, they've got to have some ability to control where you see the movies and television and stream music and all that through your Prime service. So I, I have to think that they'll either partner or make an acquisition in that. Well, you, you would think so, especially because of 
you know, Amazon's making another run at food, right? They, they bought yes, Whole Foods. Right. They're probably going to get into pharmacy. See, the, the, this is all about the connected home, right? We've been talking about this for 20 years. And everyone wants to dominate the home. But it all starts, at least right now, that might change. It all starts with the phone. It all starts That's with the right. device in your hand. And, and that device in your hand will control the refrigerator, the dishwasher, the you know other devices that I don't use. But <laughs> well, whatever right. the case is, it starts with that. It starts with that phone, and I think that's why this is really important for what Google does. And that's why when I saw that, I'm like, okay, Amazon. Yes, I totally agree with you about Amazon. But then I'm also like, well, what about Facebook? And how long are this? So this is what I don't even know if this is interesting or or silly thinking, but. So Apple has the iPhone, obviously. Google's going to have their HTC device and their Pixel and whatever else they have. But right now, they're giving real estate to Facebook. Facebook is being allowed to have real estate right now on the the operating systems of Apple and Google. That might change. So if you're Facebook, don't you sit up at night a little bit concerned about that, that the fate ultimately is in the hands of whoever has, owns that smartphone (laughs) device? I mean, I'm just saying it's a possibility they could say, well, we're not going to put it – we're not going to make it as easy for you to use the app. Yeah, of course they are. I, I mean, we're already seeing that, right? We're seeing – we talked about last week we, that Apple's already getting into trouble with advertisers, the ANA and the 4As and, and everybody else that has advertising in their acronym that basically they're not making Safari – any easier to use and track data and making it much easier for their consumers, their customers to opt out of such things. And that's, boy, those turf wars are just now starting. I mean, that, you know, if you think it's hot now, you know, give it a year or so. Yeah. Interesting. All right. There you go. We saw the way breaking news, breaking news is today. Amazon acquired, um, a, a company called shopper stop, which, you know, just to continue, it, it struck me when you mentioned the food thing. Today they acquired the Shopper Stop, which is ostensibly the 7-Eleven of India, right? They have 83 stores. They're fast food and, and um, sort of quick quick markets kind of thing. Okay. Um, and uh, uh, 83 stores in 38 Indian cities. And so you can see why, right? That becomes an immediate place for them to pick up your packages and do st- all sorts of stuff. So Amazon doing big things, big, 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 yep, it's big It's going to be crazy. Yep. Okay, so anyway, moving on to our second quick uh, quick uh, hit here. The ANA advertising, speaking of the ANA, uh, advertiser, Association of National Advertisers, um, warns of a talent crisis as industry struggles to appeal to college graduates. This uh, story coming courtesy of adweek.com and opens up by saying, a new study from the Association of National Advertisers, the ANA, found that the advertising industry is facing a, quote, looming marketing and advertising talent crisis. The study, entitled Bridging the Talent Disconnect, Charting the Pathways to Future Growth, was funded by the ANA Education Fund, AEF, and conducted by market research company GFK. Uh, It surveyed marketing leaders, academics, students, new hires to arrive at its conclusions. Among the findings were that college students were unsure what a career in advertising and marketing might entail (laughs) and whether it represented the work they deemed meaningful um i totally have a take on this what what was as you can hear in my voice what what did you think you're darn right they got a problem because (laughs) absolutely and it's gonna get worse because Uh. who first of all we have to put the disclaimer out 
you and I are not against advertising. We've no, never been not against at all. advertising. I'm, I love advertising. We I love, grew up love in advertising. advertising. But to be honest, the future of the marketing profession does not necessarily lie in in-depth knowledge of advertising. I think you can learn a lot about the process and what happened in the past. I mean, you're, you're a great student of advertising, and I mean, you know more about this stuff than just about anybody. And so I, I appreciate that. I think that if you are in taking marketing classes, there should be something around advertising and, and what makes that meaningful uh, to your whatever whatever you're getting your degree in. But you can't make you can't make ever. I don't think you can make advertising in the future sexy enough to get students to be interested in it because the fun stuff, the amazing stuff that's happening, is not in advertising. It's frankly in the stuff we're talking about. And I'm totally biased by that, but that's my take. Do you have yeah, a- I, I do, and it's 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 fascinating to me because this is not something new. This is something that the industry has been struggling with for a number of years, which is, you know, for a while, the big struggle was, of course, that this, the graduates coming out of, um, coming out of university were not trained for what it was that we were actually doing. You know, I used to hear the frustration all the time from new graduates saying, I'm going into this job and they're talking about stuff I never learned about, right? You know, I, I I used to tell the story of my niece. You know, she would she she was going in for her marketing degree. This is a few years ago, and they were teaching her how to do PHP and HTML in a marketing class. And it's like, stop it! That's you know, stop, stop, stop. You know, there's absolute value in understanding and learning the the four Ps. Um, you know, and and all the classic history of marketing because. The classic approach to developing value around a product and the, you're figuring out where to put that product into the marketplace and how to price it and how to promote it and how to place it all the and how to package it and all of the things that we learn about in a classic marketing and advertising space is absolutely still as fundamental today as it was 60 years ago when we were learning about it. The challenge is today that, of course, everything's evolving very, very quickly. And so it's not that advertising is died or dead or whatever, but it's evolving so fundamentally that it just doesn't look like what it's used to, right? So paid media will always be around. Yeah. It's just what does paid media mean in, in the new world? That's what we need to be training our, our folks on. And here, by the way, is a huge place where brands could step up. Um, and really take it and take a and take a leadership role here, you know. And I mean, not, I don't want to pat ourselves on the back or anything, but you know, we we've taken distinct steps to train people in what we believe is the new mo- models of and modalities of of marketing, but a very specific niche within that. It would be very very easy for a big brand to step in here and create the new educational system for marketers and advertising and let those millennials and young people find the meaning in that because there is tons and marketing is the strategic function in the business and there will be tons of meaning to be had but quite frankly if it's all about click through and optimizing your you know your programmatic ad buys across personalization and yada 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 then nobody's going to find any meaning in that and that's and that's the real challenge here is that you know, in a weird way, what the ANA is really, what this study really illuminated was the story of marketing has been lost. 
and that's and we need to refine the story of marketing and we just wrote a book on it but but that's a whole different thing i i think that what you said was very eloquent uh i th- <laughs> i think that i th- yeah, i think that um it's interesting i get confused with the story and whether we're talking about marketing or just a piece of marketing which is advertising and yes. it seems like it seems like what we what they're really talking about is advertising and I think that I think that's yeah. right there. That's that's the issue. It can't you can't just talk about advertising today. You really have to talk about marketing. And when you when you are the and, and I love the people at the ANA. I, I think that uh, there's a lot of good people over there. But when you're the Association of National Advertisers, you're slanted toward advertising. Of course. I mean, yeah. and that's you know, and that's that's fine. It's right? fine. I yeah, mean, that's fine. Yeah. It's absolutely what they're there to represent, and I totally get it. But looking at the evolution of the media, I mean, this is something you know. I don't know if you've been hearing. I was actually on Mitch Joel's wonderful, by the way, podcast, Six Pixels of Separation, and he and I had a good, healthy, fun, interesting debate about this, um, where he was really sort of pressing on our book thesis, and he was saying, "Listen, are you?" Are you really just saying that you're killing advertising, the, that, uh, that part of marketing, or are you really fundamentally talking about the marketing process, four Ps, the in-depth, all of those things that we knew growing up in university around the idea of marketing? And I said, it's the latter, even though we focus on advertising, and the reason we focus on advertising as the main media thing that we're talking about here is, one, because we're talking about media and content as a sort of core you know, sort of uh, idea and thesis in the book, but secondarily, because quite frankly, in many ways, that's the reality of marketing in businesses today. In other words, if I went into businesses as a as a consultant, advisor, and coach, and I saw that they were practicing what I learned in marketing, creating integrated marketing plans, the marketing mix, the classic of the four Ps, product marketing in depth audience research, understanding my TAM, my total addressable market, and how I apply the four... If I saw that happening, I would be like, you're right, there's a lot of classic, wonderful stuff going on, and we just need to fix this one part. Unfortunately, that's what not mar- that's not what marketing is in most businesses today. In most businesses today, marketing is simply, how do I fill all the channels I have full of content and optimize the top of the funnel and pour more leads on top of sales? That's what marketing is, the reality in most businesses today. And why it has such a struggle today in terms of being segmented into the corner where it's, in many cases, a non-strategic part of the business. Because it is only about that one thing instead of being about creating the valuable experience for our customers writ large. And so in fixing that and expanding the remit to what we used to do in marketing in the old, 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 old days, integrated marketing mix, all of the wonderful things, I think, we think in this book, you've got to completely upend the marketing that we quote unquote know in order to draw a blank new slate and take advantage of the evolution of what we've where we've come from. And that to me is the fundamental difference here that we don't know where to drive meaning for these new candidates, talented kids and you know where the talent gap really lies because what marketing is becoming is changing and the talent therein has to change too. That's a great that's an excellent point. I, I and that's the question that I had is what marketing are we talking about here? Yeah. 
And if we if we're all on the same page with what marketing we're talking about here, then great, let's go do it. Let's do the visiting professors program. Let's do whatever they're doing. But I mean, our goal is to, and what we've been trying to do is get books like Killing Marketing and Experiences and Epic into into the uh, marketing classes of today around the country, or yeah. just or just online education. They right. can go find it themselves. And by the way, m- killing marketing, you know, you can you can tell by the size of the book if you hold it in your hand, the the whole book of killing marketing is going to ask a lot more questions than it answers, right? Our our goal was not to write the complete thesis for how to save marketing in the entirety of what we think of as marketing. Our thesis for the book was to say, here's one thing we should be asking ourselves as we reformat the entirety of marketing. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like, we're not, you and I weren't trying to save the world. We were trying to save one specific aspect of marketing and turn it into a profit center and provide an opportunity for businesses to actually do something that's more meaningful in you know in 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 what they do day to day. Well, it's, but it started, I mean, when you and I first had the conversation, not to, to, you know, go off the topic, but we asked the question, um, look at look at how much marketing has changed and why is the average enterprise still set up exactly the same way that <laughs> exactly. it was 75 right. years ago. That's that right. was I mean, we just asked the question. Are you like why is that? Why have we made that decision as marketers, PR professionals, communication professionals, CMOs, CEOs? We haven't changed that at all. And that, of course, that ended up being killing marketing. But it was just yeah. a very All we did question. was add departments. We just we added more silos yeah. is what we did. We created a whole different group called, you know, 17 years ago, we created a different group in marketing called Digital. Digital. Right. Yeah. And, and now, and, and we called that evolution. And it's not. It's, that's not evolution. That's not changing. That's not changing how the way, that's not changing us. It's changing our environment, the design of what we do to try and match the evolution. And it's, and it's not, you know, we, we actually need to change too. So, all right. Yeah. Got way off right. on that one. So, yeah, there so we much go. for a no, quick that hit. was fun. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's move on to our deep coverage segments where we actually talk about a couple of stories here and dive, not that we didn't dive deep there, but, but, uh, actually dive a little deeper into something that's more specific to content marketing. And we'll open up with a story from, I guess it's Becker'sHospitalReview.com. Interesting uh, place to go find this story. And big hat tip here, by the way, to W. Jeffrey Rice, uh, at W. Jeffy R on Twitter. W. Jeffrey Rice, very formal name, W. Jeffrey. Um, And the headline here is Mayo Clinic offers first aid assistance on Amazon Alexa. This was a fascinating story, I thought. The uh, story opens up by saying, Rochester, Minnesota-based Mayo Clinic is offering first aid advice through Amazon's digital voice assistant, Alexa. The free Mayo Clinic first aid program is designed to help users with non-life-threatening medical problems like how to care for a spider bite or treat a cut, although it can provide information in emergency situations such as how to do CPR, according to Amazon's product description. We provide health information in a print newsletter, digital newsletter, desktop, web, mobile web, uh, said Mayo Clinic, and we view this voice interface, specifically the Amazon Alexa application, as basically a new channel to provide that information, uh, said uh, said Mayo Clinic. What did you think about this? I thought this was just, I mean, this is the future, right? I'm, this completely, is fast, I'm completely fascinated yeah. by this, and I have no answers at this point, other than to yeah. generally with 
um, Google Home and Echo, Alexa, and everything that's going on. We are thinking that they're going to pull our search results so that we become really good at search engine optimization and somebody asks Alexa for something that, oh, they'll go, Amazon will go to Bing or Google or whatever, pull the, that, and then hope maybe we'll get some credit, maybe we won't. We don't know yet, but that's that's the thought. But here, Mayo Clinic, because of their expertise and because they did a little bit of work here, they are going to come up on any of these types of questions and because Amazon is trusting them. It's probably a, hey, Mayo Clinic knows what they're doing, and we've talked about this before with what Cleveland Clinic has done and their blog and their expertise. So it's just interesting where we're starting to see this fragmentation happen where you absolutely could see this happen uh, on um, on Apple devices. You could. But let's just say we know what's going on right now for Amazon. So what does that mean? That means that in order to even be considered for something like this in any category and somebody asks um, Alexa for something, we better have expertise in that area. We have to prove that we are the leading expert in that particular area. Mayo Clinic obviously has done a very good job uh, with their expertise. They're known as one of the, the best in the world around this stuff. So it's not going to be that easy as, oh, we got to figure out search. Not that search is easy, but it's definitely different here. And that's why if we need to make another case to say, why do you need to be to your particular audience, the world's leading expert on a particular topic area, this is just another uh, another one in the quiver, if you ask me. I don't know if it's what your take is, but that was mine. It is. It's, well, no, it's exactly that. I mean, this is one of those situations where, quite frankly, I think the content will drive adoption of the technology. Uh, and what I mean by that is that right now, voice search is mostly f- a frustrating experience. You know, I mean, I have, I've tried both, right? And I won't say them because they'll go off in my office as I say them. But basically, I've, I have the Google one, I have the Amazon one, um, and of course I have Apple. Um, and the, I've tried all three of them for various things, tasks, or questions that I might want to ask. And unfortunately, it's primarily a frustrating experience because most of what you get back is, well, here's what I found on the web. And then you get a list of links that are basically marketing links, right? They're yep. to, to, to my homepage, to, to something that I want to sell you something. And of course, that's what we've been doing with our content for the last you know 17 years is building websites to help create that quote unquote retail um, or direct to consumer storefront where we're trying to sell stuff in an optimal way. And instead, what this is, is using something that comes naturally to us as a user interface, a our voice, but quite frankly, doesn't come as naturally for us as a navigational method. And so it's easy for us to ask questions and to explore topics in natural language. What's really hard is if it's not immediately forthcoming to then f- turn your brain and say, I mean, this is how I want to navigate, you know, and say the name of the, the automated thing. So as more and more content becomes available across this, this is, you know, if, I don't know if you remember from Intelligent Content Conference when Pavan Aurora, the, one of the chief data folks for the IBM Watson, was pleading with the audience for it. Give me your content. I need great expert content yep. because that's what makes Watson work. And that's what's going to make all of these other things work, right? Is going to be great, expert, valuable, quality content. 
Now, monetizing that will be a whole other thing, and it'll be really interesting. But if the content's not there, voice search doesn't take off. And so I I also think you're going to see all these companies really invest in this and put money into something, you know, like Mayo Clinic and others that are providing this expert level content. Well, so it says the last line of this says Amazon is not paying Mayo for its first aid content. But I think that's just this is a test run. I think that two things are going to happen. Amazon is going to start syndicating and paying for other people's content um, where it makes sense to do do that, or Amazon is going to purchase the content and buy media companies and buy whatever they have to, so they own it. That's exactly um, right. So those are the two, you know, opportunities, if you will. So there is a if you're a brand out there and you're saying, okay, well, if you create all this content, is there another way to make money off it? And the folks at Aero Electronics and Red Bull Media House have shown that absolutely you can make money off of syndicating your content. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Um, You know what? We should talk about our wonderful sponsor, our our show sponsor for this, because it's another yet another returning Returning spot. We love our returning. It's unbelievable. I know it's crazy. Today's episode sponsor is our good friends at Snap App and Snap App are fantastic folks. Snap App. And today's buying committees are diverse. Did you know this, Robert? Did you know this? Yeah. They're diverse. Millennials are already taking their seats among Gen X and baby boomers at the buying table, (laughs) making navigating the Baby boozers. That's what we are. We're baby boozers (laughs) is what we are. I'm sorry, Snap App. See, I can't even read the copy because because I'm me and uh, it's that time of the day. And I'm me. Yeah, exactly. So making navigating the already complicated buying environment even harder thanks to their different preferences. Though this shift might seem minor, it greatly impacts how marketing teams operate, sales teams engage, and how purchase decisions are ultimately made. SnapApp and Heinz Marketing, we love the folks at Heinz Marketing as well, recently conducted research to answer the question, how do different generations like to buy? Interesting, right? Their report, the millennials are here, how generational differences impact B2B buying committees today looks at the differences between the rising millennial buyer, their Gen X and baby boomer counterparts, and how B2B marketing and sales strategies can address the gaps between them. So we definitely want you to read this report. You can download it at cmi.media slash PNR202. That's cmi.media slash PNR202 to get this how you know how do these generations like to buy and how i mean if you're concerned about millennials or even you know us wonderful gen xers that are around here um i think this report will be very helpful to you they've done a great job putting it together so go to cmi.media slash pnr202 to download that and thanks to our wonderful friends at snap app for making this happen it's absolutely thank you so much for that it's um most appreciated and and a and a wonderful promotion at that there you go um all right, so now for your favorite uh, part of the show, ladies and gentlemen, it is our rants and rave section where Joe and I go off on a little bit of a rant or a little bit of a rave over something that makes us feel like they're so talented or something that makes us feel like, yeah, we're at that uh, talent show from hell. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, you ever go to one of those, a talent show from hell? Oh, yes. You sit there, oh, you know, I mean, yes. You got kids, right? Yes, you know, I, I've sit. been in them. <laughs> <laughs> Jazz hands. Indeed. Okay, forget it. Yes. <laughs> so let's see. I'm going first because I have this old marketing huge shock yes. for the world. Um, and I have a bit of I have a small rant 
And then uh, a, a rave or commentary, I'm not really sure which it is. Um, but my rant, um, what we'll link to in the show notes is this article. Um, it's on business to community. Um, and the headline is predictive analytics, predicting customer behavior to improve ROI. And for any frequent listener of the show, you sort of know my take on predictive analytics. Um, and I don't mean to throw the author here under a bus. Um, and I'm not gonna, um, throw the author under a bus because I, 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 and looking at what she does, um, I understand why she wrote the article because it's, it's content, um, meant to do marketing like things. But my point is, is that I read this article with great interest because I've been searching for, quite frankly, an article and or information on predictive analytics that doesn't make me want to roll my eyes. Um, because every time I read an article about predictive analytics is, is going to be something about how we use data to actually look and make decisions about the future, which to me is measurement and analytics. And I don't really understand the difference. And so... When I go through this article and basically the whole thing is like, hey, what is predictive analytics? Well, we actually look at the data of the sales and what we've been doing and your content consumption and all of that. And then we give you a dashboard where we can help you make decisions about what you're going to do in the future. And it's like, I don't know how that's predictive, right? Predictive is telling me how I'm, what's going to happen in the future, uh, and and I just I really struggle with the whole thing, and so I just wanted to just I, I look at that and I go I, I I don't get it I don't I don't get the whole idea of predictive analytics. We're not even good at the numbers we have, much less the ones that tell us the future. So it's 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 really just a case of can we get good at the analytics before we start getting into the predictive stuff? So anyway, not to get too much on a rant. That's all right. No, I'm yeah. I'm virtually patting your back. Be okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so the second one um, is an article that I think is a must read um, for any marketer. And it's a fascinating. So it's sorry, it's the Wall Street Journal. And I know many of you aren't subscribers to the Wall Street Journal and won't be subscribers to the Wall Street Journal. So for many of you, this article may not be available. But it's from the Wall Street Journal. And it's a guy from a media company. He's a company called Hearts and Sciences, and he's the CEO, Scott Hagedorn, and they buy media. They buy advertising media. And the title of the article is uh, How Marketers Are Missing a Generation of Unreachables. And he goes on to explain in this article to say, look, you know, we're seeing a seismic shift in media consumption. Um, and they talk, he talks about young people and how they're not being fairly represented in Nielsen because of the way that they consume their content and that brands are not putting in the Nielsen technology into smart devices and, and those kinds of things because, quite frankly, they have no reason to. Um, and so Nielsen is now underrepresenting young millennial sort of age groups of, of demographics in much of mass media. And they're starting to call this group the unreachables. Which are these young people, Gen Xers, and 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 those that are sort of cord cutters, uh, or even co as they say, cord nevers, and they represent a huge swath in spending power uh, and their growth segments for where we want to market to. But the traditional measurement firms like Nielsen and Comscore and Kantar, they're doing fine with estimating traditional television, but they're really losing quickly on these over-the-top devices like Apple TV and Roku and all the things that we talk about on this show and the sort of direct access to audiences and you know much of why Google bought HTC. So with all that said, 
I sort of look at it and I go, this this is the manifesto when I start thinking about why audiences are so important. And if I may, <laughs> when I look at that and I say, for a media person, like when I say, why is an audience important? And one of the things that I've been talking about lately is talking to media buyers and those that are using a lot of ad- business to consumer companies for the most part that are using lots of advertising. And I say, guess what? Nielsen, Kantar, Comscore, all the panel-based measurement services out there in the world, yet they've been democratized too. So just consider this for a second here. This is a, and, and I'm not answering a question. I'm actually asking a question here. What if we, what if let's pretend advertising is going great? Let's just pretend advertising is the effectiveness is great. The bots are fine. We figure out a way to deal with ad fraud. Programmatic is wonderful, et cetera, et cetera. But we're looking for a better measurement from what we're getting from broadcast television, Nielsen, the, our measurement companies. Consider that Nielsen, as an example, has 6,200 homes in the the way that they measure television and, and broadcasting advertising and how much advertising dollars are based on that 6,200 number. It's amazing. It represents 0. 0.00005, five thousandths of a percent of the total addressable audience in television. Now, if the only business reason you had was to say, hey, can we replicate what Nielsen does and create a panel to understand where our audience is spending their time in their media consumption habits and actually be able to ask them and keep a diary and do that? Could we replicate what Nielsen does? The answer is absolutely yes. You only need to reach five thousandths of a percent of your total addressable market. So if you had, so let's say you're a business to business organization and your total addressable market is a million people like, you know, VPs of marketing or something like that, right? Your total addressable market is a million people. If you can get 50 people to sign up for your blog, you will have the same measuring capabilities that Nielsen does. <laughs> that, to me, That's is an overwhelming business case to make for an owned media audience, even if it's only to look at it as our own panel that we can use to measure the media that we're spending on. And that, to me, is just... And so this article has just sort of inspired me to sort of think about it that way, and I thought it was really great. That's a great point. And it, I, don't, I don't think people realize how few homes Nielsen is a part of. 6,200. Six, and that, by the way, that's only within the last two years. The last two... They've, they've doubled, basically, their, their... Now, they're doing all sorts of other stuff, and they'll tell you that they're putting, you know, stuff into set-top boxes, and they're trying to get into, you know... They're trying to get much more than their panel-based survey, and they're trying... But it's been slow going for them. It's been slow going, because the technology providers don't want to put it in their... Don't want to put it in their technology. So it's been very, 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 very slow going. So it's a... I just think it's a fascinating thing to say... You know, we could probably replicate what Comscore or Nielsen does by looking at our own audience. And this is, by the way, what Kraft has made work so well. It's what Johnson & Johnson makes so well, is that they understand their audience better than the research companies understand their audience. First-party data. There it is. It's a thing. It's a thing. All right. (laughs) That's my rant in my rant. Very good. Mine is is very brief, uh, but I just wanted to talk about – I had a – I spent last Tuesday – which was Killing Marketing Launch Day, uh, with a wonderful mid-sized uh, consulting company just outside of Cleveland, Ohio. And it was their team meeting. They brought in people from all over the world. 
and all their senior marketing and operations leaders were present, including their CEO, which was wonderful. I mean, it was wonderful to be in the room. They're talking marketing. And the CEO is listening to all this, and and I just that's a rarity. Rarely do you get the CEO of a of a mid market company that's actually in the room. So, after I did about an hour presentation and another hour of Q and A time, we ended with the question, and you'll love this, Robert, because you talk about this all the time. What if we're wrong? What if we're wrong about all this? So we had a we had a really frank discussion about the worst that can happen with taking a strategic look at content marketing or your own media or whatever you want to call it. And we talked about how almost every enterprise is creating more content than they did last year. And we'll create even more content in the next year, most likely. And you could argue that more content is created in an average organization than almost anything else an organization does, which I don't think a lot of people really think about. Like if you, you probably create way more content than you do your products or services. You're just creating lots of stuff. Right Now, even if the company isn't able to develop multiple lines of revenue from building trusted audiences, that's what we talk about in the book, but even if the company doesn't develop new products or services from the knowledge developed from those audiences and, and, and talk about what you just talked about with first-party data, even if you don't get the kind of data you want, even if the company isn't able to develop any kind of a profit center out of their marketing. The absolute worst thing that will happen from taking a strategic approach to content is to understand why the company is spending so much time creating content. I love that because you talk about that in chapter 10. (laughs) It's my favorite chapter. I didn't write it. What are the costs? You know, what what are the resources? What happens if we create more content or less content? And I just, having that conversation in front of the CEO was liberating, I think, for everyone because the CEO is absolutely shaking his head and everybody's on the same page. So we're starting to build in the business case for this. Even if we don't drive more sales through it, which we will, but even if we don't, you know, what's the worst thing that could happen? So I just pulled this from the final page of Killing Marketing. This, These are your words, Robert, but I wanted to, to bring this back because as I was talking about this, I went through the chapter. It says, if we're wrong about everything in this book, and evolving content marketing into a profit center isn't actually a reality, it still makes sense to become more strategic about your own media strategy, even if only to get your arms around the cost of doing business in today's digital world. Thinking strategically about the use of own media doesn't cost you any more. So I just wanted to leave with that because (laughs) it was a nice conversation to have. And I'm glad. Well, and then we're, I mean, it's fun to take parts of the book and put them into action. And have a real conversation around this. And it's, I mean, it's absolutely an argument that holds. It's like you are creating more of this stuff than you ever thought was possible. And you owe it to yourself as an organization to be more strategic about it. That's right. To understand why. Yeah. Right. To just not just even if the the only reason is to understand why. Why are we doing this? Because if it's not worth doing, then why are you doing it? And that's then that's the and and that's the and maybe you'll find out it's not. Then great, right. but you don't know right now. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. You know, and and if it's worth doing, it's worth doing well, right? It's worth doing as a as a as a process and a function. In other words, if we're going to do it, well, let's do it the right way. Let's do it well. Let's do it strategically. Let's not just sort of throw. You know, nobody would say, you know, 
we kind of buy into this whole accounting thing, but we're really only going to use addition and subtraction. We're, exactly. we're not going to do any other that math. That division because, is so you know, that's pesky. Yeah, that, that, that's that's pes- the pesky multiplication. That whole order of operations thing, that seems pretty you know, fluid. You know, we'll, we'll play with the order of operations and math. You know? Nobody does that. Of course not. Um, awesome. So, um, okay, we have so a we cool have a, uh, This Old Marketing. We do have a cool uh, This Old Marketing this week, um, mainly because I am a bit of a fan, I have to say. So, first of all, big hat tip here to um, one of our like new regular and favorite contributors here, Bethany Johnson. Uh, that with the uh, – it's a little like Voldemort. She has the Twitter handle that, that shall not be named. Um, and uh, <laughs> Is that right? Did I get that right? That's good. Is that, is that the – yeah. Okay. Yeah, right. that's I don't good. know Harry Potter, so I was totally going out yep, on a Yeah, that's right. No, you got it. You got it. All right. So hat, hat tip to Bethany here. Um, thank you, Bethany, for this, because this is a really cool one. This is on the Skyward uh, blog on the content standard. So that's what we'll link to in the show notes here. And it's really the story of fluff. Um, you know, when you get fluff, you uh, do you know fluff? Are you a fluff um, fan? No, a fluff um, and nutter? I, I have no nothing. Fluffer nutter? Fluff? Fluffer nutter? You never about? had a fluffer nutter? I know Can of fluffer nutter with not a peanut butter. I know what you're you talking about. F- yes. Okay, I know right. exactly. So it's marshmallow what you're and about. peanut butter, but fluff, which was the marshmallow-like substance that basically makes up the contents of a fluffer nutter. Um, this was the story of it is really fascinating and a content marketing and this old marketing example. So it was started when uh, Alan Durkee and Fred Mower purchased the recipe from a company called Query and it began manufacturing in 1920. Um, this is according to the official history of marshmallow fluff. And they, they initially called it Toot Sweet Marshmallow Fluff, but eventually just shortened it to Marshmallow Fluff. And the, of course, the name has stuck. Um, and they were doing well. They were getting a good reputation with, uh, with local customers and selling it through uh, grocery stores and all those kinds of things. And then this new technology called radio came along. And they decided instead of creating um, ads, which were becoming very popular on the radio, instead they would actually create a show. And they created their own show. Um, basically, they, you know, and like many of the brands that we've talked about on this show before, they created uh, a show. They they've, they've created a show called The Flufferettes. And The Flufferettes, <laughs> I'm not even kidding, oh, that's man. the real name, was a variety show featuring music and comedy acts. Um, it was on the Yankee Radio Network, which had 21 stations across the New England area. And basically, every Sunday evening, the Flufferettes, uh, the show would come on, and it was the three Gallagher sisters, Rita, Mary, and Rosemary, and backed by a pianist named Milton Brody, and they had musicians, and they had banjo, and they had dancing, um, and they had you know stories that they would tell, and all of those kinds of things. The show lasted until the 1940s. Um, and even helped contribute a lot of the Allied efforts in World War, World War II um, by promoting Navy and promoting the armed forces all through the Flufferettes show. Um, and even today, the Durkee and Mower family still own and operate the Fluff brand, um, and it's enjoyed all over the U.S. And, and, and in Canada. And this one show that they created basically replaced their marketing strategy and created a wonderful example uh, of this old marketing. That's fantastic. <laughs> Love that. Great. Big hat tip here to Bethany for that. And I will also throw a shout out to Mike Joyce um, at Skyward for writing the story because I ostensibly just summarized his story here on Skyward. So linking over to that in the show notes will be important as well. So Very it'll be cool. great. Awesome. So, uh, yeah. so what do you got going on this week? 
Uh, I fly tomorrow uh, to visit the wonderful folks up at Intel in uh, in Portland, and I am keynoting um, along with the wonderful and beautiful Tamsin Webster. Um, she is also joining me up there, and we are doing a morning uh, sort of set of keynotes on content marketing and her on her storytelling uh, practice. And then we're doing a um, uh, an hour, each of us doing an hour-long workshop to follow that. So we will be up at the meeting the wonderful folks at Intel, many of whom we know and spoke at Content Marketing World and and uh, and are and are fantastic themselves. So it's a it's a it's a day at Intel, as it were. And you. Very nice. I uh, well, I'm in Chicago now. I speak uh, twice tomorrow. I have a keynote uh, talking about talking to niche publishers and how they can find success digitally. So basically, telling the CMI story. So that'll be fun doing that. And then I have another keynote speech in Jacksonville on Wednesday, and then I, I head home. So um, so you oh, know, a nice. little little bit of road. This is the this is the first time I've recorded this old marketing in a hotel for a long time. So I know that, and I, I I was thinking about that. I haven't had to record in a hotel in a in a uh, in, in a very long time. Jacks, everything's okay in Jacksonville, I guess. Then everything uh, apparently so. I mean, I, okay. I have a hotel room. It's confirmed. So we'll we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> we will see. the The flight yeah. is is still going. So we'll. I, okay. I, yeah, they 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 didn't uh, they didn't get anything. I don't think in in Jacksonville. So I think they're okay. okay. Very good. Very good. All right. Well, that is it, ladies and gentlemen, for Joe Polizzi. This is Robert Rose. We are signing off. And if you did like this episode, number 202, won't you leave us a kind review on iTunes? We love those kind reviews. And if you haven't yet, I mean, come on, we're 200 shows into this. And if you haven't yet, consider subscribing, won't you, on iTunes or Stitcher or your favorite podcatcher. And if you leave us a review or if you subscribe... Won't you let us know? Hashtag us up at this old marketing on the Twitter. We'd love to thank you personally. And of course, you can be like Bethany and become one of our regular contributors and give us story ideas, story ideas, story ideas. We love them. Hashtag us up on Twitter at this old marketing. Or of course, you can send an email if you have a question and or if you have a story idea, you can send it to this old marketing at contentinstitute.com. All the links we talked about today will be available in the show notes as we go to publish on Monday night. And of course, in all their replete Technicolor glory on the show post on thisoldmarketing.com on Saturday. Until next week, everybody, remember, it's your story to tell. Tell it well. See you next week on This Old Marketing. is part of the CMI Podcast Network. Check out all of our shows at contentmarketinginstitute.com.